This is the Fire Dog Podcast. The views and opinions presented on today's episode are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or the United States Air Force. Welcome, my name is Matt Wilson. Thank you for joining us for episode 27 of the Fire Dog Podcast. Before we get started, please take a minute to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen and also leave us a five-star review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. We're trying to reach as many DOD firefighters as possible so that we can connect them with information that can add value to their careers and to their fire departments. Your review directly contributes to this growth and helps build the show's credibility. Our guest today has been in the Air Force Fire Service for 37 years. He's a retired Chief Master Sergeant and is well known for having one of the more accomplished fire departments in the Air Force Fire Service. His department has won multiple annual awards, has a long list of accomplishments, and continuously pushes the boundaries of progress and innovation. Please welcome the Fire Chief of Joint Base Elmendorf-Richardson Fire Department in Alaska, Chief David Denan. Well, Chief Denan, welcome. I appreciate you agreeing to come on and talk with us today. We're excited to you know, talk with you about everything that you've uh, been involved with throughout your career and get some nuggets of wisdom. <laughs> Pleasure to be here, guys. I definitely appreciate the invitation. Typically, before we get into our talking points, you know, we have each of our guests introduce themselves. So if you could just briefly cover your time up to this point in fire protection, you know, where did you start? Uh, what kind of positions you've held and where have you been? I've been in uh, 37 years, total Air Force Fire Emergency Services. I started out in 1983, uh, joined as a young kid out of a farm town, Kentucky. Uh, did 25 years, uh, retired in 2008. Uh, my last uh, active duty job was the headquarters PACAF uh, Fire Chief, which uh, was pretty cool. Uh, after that, I joined civil service and moved up to Alaska and uh, came here to Joint Base Elmendorf Richardson, which was at the time was was just known as Elmendorf Air Force Base. And Joint Base didn't kick in for a couple of years, so I've been up here for 12 years. Uh, love it, great mission up here. Uh, I don't think there's a better mission for a firefighter anywhere in the Air Force than up here at, uh, in Alaska. Yeah, we're excited to get into you know a lot of what you do in Alaska and a lot of what the department does up there. Uh, I know that there's a lot that are probably interested in it. There's a lot of unique. Um, elements to that department. I'm excited to talk about them. Yeah, definitely. Chief, I understand that the firefighter development task books, you know, for the rookies, company officers, and senior fire officers that were recently adopted by the career field were actually kind of inspired by a similar product there that you have at J-Bear. I was wondering if you might be able to kind of share a little bit about that and then just kind of overall your approach to firefighter training. Sure. Uh, yeah, the the transition programs were something that uh, that you know they they're our transition programs are what the Air Force is, is using as a model. It's not a, a cut and paste by no means, but it, it was kind of the the motivation and model behind it. And Matt can tell you just as well as I can what the genesis of that program was. We started with the rookie program and then moved up to the company officer and senior fire officer, uh, looking at it as a cradle to grave firefighter our officer development program, uh, it, it really quite simple. You know, I got tired of hearing people uh, complain about the quality of young uh, firefighters coming out of the fire academy. And um, quite honestly, I, I just told them, I said, they're no, no dumber, no better, no smarter uh, than we were when we came in. This, we've had the benefit of, of time, experience, and training, uh, which they, of course, they haven't at this point. So, uh, We've got one of two choices we can do. We can either keep complaining about it and uh, doing nothing and just deal with it, or we can try to, to put together something that uh, can can be a benefit to our department at the time. That's where our focus was. 
that can help us develop these young folks into what we say we want them to be. And uh, Matt was, he was there at the very beginning. He, he was kind of leading the effort, uh, him along with a couple other folks. Uh, and he was on the opposite time. And uh, I was I was a little bit of a hard sell for him because uh, I'm always skeptical. Are we just doing something to, to do something? Or are we doing something that's not going to have legs and last over the, over the long term? Uh, so, you know, they throw something at me. I throw something back at them. And it went on for a while. And they worked on it for, what, Matt, probably a year, year and a half. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It was quite a while. Yeah. And, uh, year. Yeah, and, and to the point, we, we finally got to where I thought we had an 80% solution. And that's always kind of the, the tipping point for me when I'm ready to go live with something. Do I feel, feel like I got at least an 80% solution? And, uh, and we, we, Matt and the guys, they did a good sale job for the rest of the department and the rest of the leadership team. And uh, once they got me on board, uh, we decided to go for it. And uh, the first year was tough. There's no doubt it was it was a total culture change, and you know the biggest challenge we had to do was educate our the people who were already there have been in this been in the job for quite a while. Uh, in many cases, we had to standardize terminologies you know, from what everybody used at different stations, different different companies, whatever uh, what they bring in from different bases. So that was the first hurdle was just getting everybody on the same language. Um, and then, of course, you know, we had to train people to do tasks, you know, the way we wanted them to do a standardized way. And uh, that was that was most interesting. But I'd said all along from the time we, we started this, that it would be a three year uh, bed down period before we start really seeing success that we wanted. And like I said, the first year was just really about training our own people. Uh, and I know the young guys and girls that, that went through the program were, were probably pretty impatient with with us because we learned our way through it. Then we came into the second year, and the, and the folks that went through it the first time, uh, they became integral, not only providing feedback on, on what we were training them and how we were training them, but they were also starting to be instructors in their own right, which was awesome. And then come that third year, uh, we really uh, started making some progress. And we went through, uh, after about 18 months, we went through uh, a complete rewrite and revalidation of, of the course. And uh, said, okay, what's working, what's not working, took feedback from, from the folks who went through the course as well as those who were, were trainers and, and instructors. And we went back and, and made a lot of changes. And at that point, I think we probably got up to about a good 90% solution. And uh, in about every year and a half, in about every 18 months or so, we do another uh, scrub on it and come up with a, you know, a better way of, of doing it. And I'd say right now we're, we're doing pretty well. Uh, like I said, to the point where Chief Morris and, and some of the, the key leaders in the career field decided it was something that they they were interested in going Air Force wide with. Um, they, and now it's not a like I said, it's not a cut and paste of our program. It's not quite as in depth or quite as broad because we have so many different services up here that most Air Force fire emergency services flights don't. So they don't need to have quite as in depth program as we do, but. Um, I think it's a great tool. I really do. And uh, the company officer, that's still, uh, we're still working to refine our process up here. The Air Force has jumped on, and which I'm, I'm very thankful of. I think there's a lot of benefit to be added by, by looking at our folks as we're starting to put them in that right front seat. Uh, are we providing them the training and education and, and quite honestly, experience they need to be successful there? Uh, so. 
uh, we've got a ways to go, uh, but I really hope that uh, departments across the Air Force and, this, and particularly the fire chiefs are supportive of this. Um, we have, we have, I can't say how happy I am with the process, the progress that we've made over the years and, and the development that I've seen in our young firefighters. And when they finish their first tour here or their three-year mark and whether they, they decide to stay or the Air Force lets them stay or they go to another base, I'd be happy to stand them up against any any other department's people because of the of the time and effort we put into them. Uh, it, it really breaks my heart sometimes to see these guys PCS after uh, three years after all the effort we put into them and watch them grow and develop and then send them off to someone else. And then we start all over again with somebody else out of the fire academy. But that's the nature of Air Force Fire Emergency Services. Well, Chief, it sounds like a pretty robust program. You know, I had heard about it, but I hadn't really heard the details of it. And to hear that it took years to develop and then it's been written, rewritten and rewritten again mm-hmm. over the years. You know, I, I wouldn't expect a firefighter who's there for three years to benefit from something written in a month. You know, right. uh, it, it's probably going to take years to write something that's going to benefit firefighters over the course of years. So it sounds like you did it right. I was wondering, uh, you know, as, as the Air Force picks this up in a wider spectrum, what advice would you offer to other departments that are just kind of seeing these tools for the first time um, as far as how they deliver that content to their new firefighters? That's a good question, Ben. Uh, first and foremost, uh, most important thing I think that can be is you have to get buy-in at the top uh, levels of the department. Uh, Matt will tell you that he worked up here with me long enough to know that I'm a little bit of a hard sell on anything because I'm not a change for change guy. Uh, I'm a change. I'm, I'm a, I call it progressive with a purpose. Uh, I don't like to chase shiny things. It has to be a payback because if it's worth investing our people's time and energy uh, to do things, then it has to be valuable on the back end. And once they had sold me, I committed. And at that point, I committed the entire department and I held them to the standard. Uh, yeah, there, that first year or so, it was, there was a lot of people wanting to back out because it was work. It was a lot of work that first year. And uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't back off. Uh, <laughs> I probably didn't make a lot of friends that first year with it. But I really was a believer in that it was going to be the juice was worth the squeeze in the long run. And I think it's been proven right, but you have to get that fire chief and assistant chief buy-in. They have to be willing to tell their people, yeah, I know, we got to do this again. Or, you know, especially if you get a lot of three levels like we do, it gets very repetitive at times. But not only does it help develop those young firefighters, but it really keeps your your mid-level firefighters and even some of your senior folks, you know, on the edge of, of learning. And that's critical, you know. And when you're teaching something, you have to know it. In theory, at least, you have to know it. And uh, that keeps you sharp. And I think that's really done a lot to benefit our department. Uh, now, we, we are pro- if it can work at Jayberry, it can work anywhere because we have the most military firefighter authorizations any, of any department. And of that, we have, I think right now, it's about 42 three-level authorizations. So on any given year, we'll get... 20 to 33, I think it's the numbers, uh, three levels a year coming out of the academy. So it, we jokingly call it the Pacific region uh, 
fire training academy. Uh, but we take the five level upgrade, right? Uh, five level upgrade academy. We take a lot of pride in it, uh, but yeah, it's work. Our guys work really hard at it. But I think if you if you you talk to the fire chiefs, if they are our guys PCS two or deployed to with, uh, I think they would tell you that our guys are well prepared. And, uh, and there's a level of accountability that goes with that too. I would imagine because you put it on paper mm-hmm. and you say these are the standards, these are these are the goals that we're going to meet. Um, it, it kind of r- reduces that fly by night shooting in the dark training that some of us might have received when we were a little younger. Yeah, training can be very inconsistent across, especially a larger size department like this. Uh, and a lot of times it would depend on who was lead at that, that station or on that company at that time, military or civilian. You know, some are always more aggressive than others. Uh, but this kind of leveled the playing field a little bit. You know, there's a lot of signatures and sign offs and a lot of uh, cross checking that goes on. And I can tell you that one of our captains doesn't want to send a uh, young folk that they've had for the last two or three months training to the next captain and for him to tell them, what did you train this guy? He doesn't know anything. So there's a little bit of uh, peer accountability there as well. Yeah. Chief, if I may, I, I'm, you know, I could talk a little bit on how accountability is held and just watching you through the six years that I was stationed there and watching this come from kind of the grassroots and, and growing. I was, I was a part of it just about every level minus being, being the airman being taught things. But I, I was delivering the training as a staff sergeant and then a tech. And then I even, you know, participated in the senior fire officer transition program myself as a member. Um, but th- the entire motivation behind it was b- just as the chief alluded to, there, there's so many different stations, so many different people and so many different ways of doing business. It was it, it was really time for like a systematic approach to training. Um, so you could go a whole year or two without touching a ladder potentially or even pulling a hand line. And wow. this made sure that you know, this made sure that within the first 60 days you did those things, you know, at least you should be doing those things as long as you're following along with the book. And then of course <clears throat> you got to jump right into CDCs and the air force tells us we have to do those pretty quick. So it was trying to, uh, yeah, trying to get them to touch ladders and, and do those, those tactical things before driving a crash truck. But, uh, on the accountability piece, um, it, you know, for anybody out there listening and wondering, you know, how do you, how do you keep a department accountable with this stuff? Um, and, and I'm not, I don't want to speak for the chief, but from my perspective in his department, it was a, it was a weekly staff <laughs> meeting. Um, yeah. And, and yeah, keeping a thumb on those department leaders and Hey, where's he at? Where's he at? You know, simple questions. Where is so-and-so at? Okay. Well, let me know next week how he's progressed within the past week. And you could see the, you could see the gears turning a little bit and things getting done. So just yeah, I'm kind of a believer. If, nugget up uh, over me. Things get fixed to get put on slides. <laughs> uh, when you start, you know, highlighting, you know, whether it be individuals, supervisors, shifts, or you know, sections of the department, whatever, uh, people tend to not want to be on slides, uh, and you know, they tend to to want to be prepared for that staff meeting. And you know, you don't have to be a jerk about it, but uh, I think you know, there there is a sense of competitiveness among our our different assistant chiefs, and uh, of course. Nobody wants to have the old man upset, and it's not good for anyone, especially the old man's heart. So, uh, I think we hold each other accountable, and that's that's huge in my my philosophy. You know, you set standards and uh, you provide the resources. You know, that's most important. You just don't throw a standard out there and say go do. You have to figure it out what that standard is meant to achieve, 
and what's it going to cost you, whether it be money, manpower, time, et cetera. Uh, but once you commit to it, I keep going back to that. Once you commit to it, you have to hold people to it and they have to understand that they're not going to get off the hook because, you know, they drag their feet or you know, they complain about it. Uh, and, and sometimes it requires, you know, a tough approach with an individual or, or a section or whatever to explain to him that this is the department. This is who we are. And sometimes it can be tough for folks coming into the department to, to have that level of uh, detailed accountability. Am I telling the truth here, Matt? No, I 100 percent believe you know, you know, there's a lot of people up there, you know, what, 130, right. 140 folks. And so you're not going to get everybody on board, especially initially. And even still, I'm sure there's some resistance to it. But, uh, you know, they're overwhelmed by the masses, I think, at this point. Um, but, yeah, it's uh, it, w- it was a tough I-, I was in the training office when it first hit the streets. And uh, even from that position, you know, I think I know I know of a couple leaders within that department that uh, weren't too fond of me. <laughs> And, uh, and you know, that was, the rookie book was probably a large reason for that, but, uh, yeah, it was, I knew, I knew as a, as a training officer that there was going to be growing pains with it. Even, even back then yeah. I knew, um, I don't know that I quite understood to the level, but you know, it was a big effort. talking a little bit up on leadership and culture chief, um, you know, I'm just, I'm really curious to hear your philosophy on leadership and culture. You know, you alluded to it a little bit in explaining how you implemented this training program and but I've known several to work with you because, you know, I was there for six years. I worked with you myself and, uh, you know, I can say with confidence, the department culture that's, that's there is, is one of the best I've been a part of up to this point in my career. Um, you know, the pride and accountability and really the commitment to excellence uh, within the department. It's pretty consistent among all the members. You know, everybody's pretty prideful to be a member of Jay Bear and, and to, to ride the right. trucks. And I'm wondering what your leadership philosophy is. You know, how did you create that type of culture? Well, I think most chiefs will tell you something similar, that uh, first it comes down to surrounding yourself with highly competent people. Uh, We've got some of the very best assistant chiefs up here that I've ever seen in my career, and they're very highly motivated. They're very highly competitive, not only with each other sometimes, but with themselves. Uh, Sometimes my biggest challenge is to keep them from killing each other because they all, you know, they're all natural leaders and in many cases, alpha males. So. That becomes my job as the sometimes the, the circus leader. Uh, next part is challenging to think big, uh, and sometimes that's hard, especially with operations because in many cases they're just trying to survive day to day with the staffing issues, you know, different demands, training, you name it. But try to challenge your people to think big. I worked for a, a colonel when I was at headquarters, PACAF, name it. Colonel Charles Smiley, awesome officer, absolutely huge brain, uh, but very down to earth and relatable. And I remember one time he got all of his chiefs together. There was a bunch of us. And he said, and he brought out the easel with a black marker and he, and he said, big ideas. And he said, if resources were not a limitation, what would you want to do during your time here? And that really quite honestly, it set us back because we always think in, in terms of limitations. And, uh, but he, he wouldn't accept it that we couldn't come up with something or that uh, we were thinking small. He wanted big. And we did. I got to say, at the end of our time there together, uh, many of those big ideas became reality. Uh, but it just took him to challenge us and to, to be that sounding board and motivator to, to dream big. 
And uh, I'll always remember that and I always appreciate that. And I kind of try to carry that into the department. Yeah, we all live with funding limitations and short staffing, et cetera. But what would you want to do if you could do it? And uh, I think that's awesome. That's an awesome mentality to have. Uh, I can tell you, when I first got here back in 2008, I was watching and seeing what things were going on. I just started writing ideas down on a, on a yellow legal notepad. And, and there was a lot of them. And many of them didn't get done for four or five years, uh, but they got done. But they're long lead times. You know, and, you know, it may require a big investment in financial planning for for future years and multi years and uh, a lot of infrastructure changes, et cetera. But it all started with writing something down, a big idea down. And in the long term, it works for us. And that's how I see my my job is to is the fire chief is to once I get these highly competent people and I have, you know, these big ideas and, and things that people have come up with is my job is to remove the barriers from their success. Uh, you know, I can't have to, I don't have to do the work for them. In most cases, they're going to do it a lot better than I would anyway. So, but my job is to find out what resources they need and what stumbling blocks are in their path that maybe I can help smooth over or remove. So that's really about it. Chief, I, I heard Somebody smarter than me once say that culture is like wallpaper and that you see it as soon as you walk in someplace. Um, so the wallpaper at J bear, the culture there, how do you, how do you keep it at a high level? You know, I mean, how do you maintain it? You know, you talked about getting it there and, you know, slowly progressing over time, but now that it's at a high level, how do you keep folks motivated? Yeah. Uh, we have what I call a culture of questioning ourselves here. And it can be really uncomfortable for new folks into the department. Uh, but we challenge ourselves in, in kind of an unusual way that we question everything we do every year, uh, in many cases, every response. But we go through every one of our programs every year with a very critical eye. It's not just a look to see, you know, did we misspell something last year. We, we go back and we break things down and, and we, our, our commitment is to determine, are we really doing in action what we said we were going to do on paper? And sometimes you realize, no, we're not. Or the chance standard has changed or whatever the case may be, or the reality of the ground have changed. We, we really question ourselves. And we do that not just on our big programs, but in a day-to-day. Uh, and, and it doesn't, it's never intended to, to put a finger in somebody's chest, but it's intended to, to make them stop and think, why are we doing this? Or why did I do what I did? Uh, and like I said, sometimes we get, in, uh, especially senior NCOs from other departments and they're probably high performers wherever they were at and they get here and they find out that they're being questioned about what they did or why they did or their thought process. So I have to make sure I explain early on when they get here about that culture. So they're not taking it personal. So they're, they're being open-minded uh, about those questions. And it's never about them personally. It's about how are we doing as a department and how are they fitting into the department? And sometimes it's just an education piece, but uh, it can be intimidating to a lot of people, especially like I said, when they first get here from other bases, uh, we're very, I call it very self-critical. I'm very self-critical of myself. Uh, and we do after actions. Uh, I'll give an example. We had that 7.1 earthquake up here two years ago. And uh, we did a major after action on that, of course. And 
we did an internal department. Of course, they did a, a larger wing-wide one, but we did a ruled in-depth department one. And, and I was very unhappy with the way I performed. I thought I'm, I could have made a lot better decisions and communicated those decisions a lot more effectively. So as we were going through this after action, uh, I think I wrote myself up like 17 times. Uh, and people were like, what, what's the chief doing? You know, hey, I can't call you out or you can't call yourself out if I'm afraid to call myself out. So, yeah, I, I, it gave me a lot of work and things I needed to, to what I felt I needed to fix, uh, both, you know, my thought processes, but also, you know, within the department and processes and programs. So uh, you have to question, you know, if, if you're not willing to question yourself, then you should be questioning others. If I may, I'm, I could speak from the, the tactical level or the, again, the, the kind of the company officer level as a member of his department. Um, it, it's a positive feedback loop. You know, uh, each one of the members, even on the floor, keep each other accountable. And another piece of it is the the, the call volume or the, uh, I guess, the caliber of calls that you're exposed to is another part of that. You, you have to be on top of your game um, because, it, you know, you could have people fall down the cl cliff sides, you know, in a vehicle or a pretty serious and robust um, EMS program up there. And, you know, you could be away from, you know, you could be away from definitive care for a while. So you have to know what you, you're doing in the field and you have to have, you know, sound medical practice, you know, sound providers. And, and so we kind of keep our, ourselves accountable in that way. Yeah. If, if you're a, if you're a tech sergeant or a master sergeant, you have orders to Bear, you know, it, it's important that uh, you show up with some humility, um, <laughs> right. you know, and it's, it's, it's a, uh, it's an intimidating place. Fortunately, I showed up as a young staff sergeant, so I was kind of, uh, an open book, right. I, I was, uh, I didn't know too much. And so, uh, you know, fortunately for me, it, it shapes who I am even today. And, uh, but if you're a tech sergeant and mass sergeant kind of solidified your leadership philosophies and the way that you think and the way that you do business, show up with some humility, uh, listen to the youngest airmen. And of course, listen to the the peers and the assistant chiefs. And it's going to be different. Yeah. It's going to be different for you as a master sergeant or a tech sergeant, but I think that it'll pay dividends. It, it'll, it'll benefit your career. Uh, like you, you can't even understand really until it's all said and done, but that's just my piece of it. That's why yeah, I that. If you come in here, like you said, you're, you're willing to listen and learn. Uh, the time you're done here, you're going to come, you're going to leave here. I think a lot's a lot better fire officer and a lot better senior. And so in many cases than you were when you got here. Uh, you know, I've, I've had a lot of people um, that I've worked with over the years come from J bear. I was just thinking about it while you guys were talking. I don't know that I've heard a single bad story. Or, you know, or, you know, like an overall uh, J-Bear wasn't great for me. Yeah. I think every single one of them came back with a positive experience. And I think that that says something about, you know, going back to the culture and, you know, whether that was under your specific leadership there or just as a, as a home for a few years, no matter how long they were there right. or how long ago they were there, you know, many people have come back and had positive experiences. So um, kudos to you and your department chief. Uh, uh, you know, as we move on to the next topic here, talking about initiatives, you know, Jay bears in the news, I'll say the news, but um, you know, at the forefront of some, some big initiatives over the years, you, you know, you've been captured for obviously the firefighter development task books, but I've also heard that the department there is involved in wildland firefighting out in the state 
and I'm sure a bunch of other awesome endeavors. So I was just kind of wanted to ask what are what other things are on the horizon for J Bear and what unique other elements are there to J Bear as a department? Yeah, you're right. We've we've tried to think outside the box a lot up here. And sometimes we just throw the box away and figure out we gotta figure out a different way to do it that works for J Bear and works in Alaska. Because uh, they say things can be a little different up here, especially if you start dealing with our climate and terrain. First one thing and the other, the joint mission. Uh, we're a little bit of a different animal. Uh, you know, many of the things we, we've done over the years at the time were, was cutting edge, and now in many cases uh, they're they're commonplace that you'll see across the Air Force. Uh, you know, one of the biggest things I got here that I noticed, as far as a weakness, was communication across the department. So, you know, it's really hard to get the message out across, you know, seven stations, uh, two other, uh, two, three other operating facilities that we're in. I think we work out of 10 facilities and, and it's hard to get that message out there in any kind of even uh, platform. So, you know, when we, we basically built our own dark fiber network system and, uh, and put in a video teleconferencing, you know, so. Uh, and not only can that video teleconference, but also can record and, and play back and do a bunch of other different functions. Uh, that helped us to reach out to the more outlying stations to get the message out there. It's not 100% effective. It's got human you know, built into it. So we have to constantly work <laughs> on that part. But it helped us with our training, you know, cons- uh, to make our training more consistent. It helped us to reduce the number of uh, of individual people who had to prepare for courses. So we were able to do many of them as a group. Some you couldn't, but many of them you could. It also prevented us from having to move vehicles around as much from one district to another district, which is especially difficult here in the wintertime when you may not have warm parking at the station when this vehicle has to come over for this class. So those were, you know, that's becoming more common now, but that was a huge leap forward for us. Uh, You know, criteria-based dispatching. That's something that uh, we've brought into the mix up here. Everybody wants to talk about EMD. This is a form of EMD that was developed out of uh, Seattle and King County in Washington State. And uh, it, it puts our dispatchers at a, gives them a great toolbox for being able to, to really refine out what the caller is looking or what they've got going on and how do we can interject and provide them that immediate uh, information they need to, to get, whether it be CPR or whatever started and get our crews on the road that's a big challenge uh you know we our 1851 program you know we were probably the first to have a comprehensive 1851 program and now you're seeing it you know many other departments that are doing the same thing uh or in many cases their contract support but we still do our own with the exception of repairs and that's a big that's a big uh lift uh we have an 1851 is uh PPE inspection, testing, maintenance. Uh, We have a fully certified uh, fire investigation program. And it wasn't because it was something I would just want to do because I thought it would be cool to have our own fire investigators. Uh, It was something we had out of necessity uh, due to some past incidents where we couldn't rely on our mutual aid partners for investigation services or the state fire marshal. So we we finally realized we had to develop a fire investigation program. So we had to spend a lot of time and money to, to get people certified and qualified and position descriptions changed, et cetera. 
to be able to stand that program up. And there's a lot of legal bases and legal hurdles you have to, to go over and go around to, to make that happen. But that, that's just one of the cases where we have a unique circumstance that we had to, to go against the norm of what we do in Air Force Fire Emergency Services. But it's been very successful. Anytime we have an incident and these guys provide uh, fire investigation reports, it's a, it just amazes me the quality and the detail of the product they produce. Uh, it's, it's over my head many times and the technical stuff they, they put in these reports. Uh, you know, we, we believe in technology when we can. Technology is not the answer to everything. Uh, we've got uh, two pump simulators, you know, a mid-mount and a side-mount pump simulator. Uh, they can be able to be connected together. They're all programmed with different scenarios. Uh, we built our four, built a 1410 scenarios into them, so to give the guys a good baseline for for early pump operations. You know how to when they're just young in in their development. Uh, and we got a driver simulator coming in that will also connect to those pump simulators. They're all be interconnected through our our web system. Uh, so, you know, technology is it's just another tool. It's not the solution for everything, but it's a technology. It's a tool that these young guys and girls are so you know, used to, more so than you know, people my age. So, you know, and when you're talking in the wintertime up here and getting trucks out and sub-zero, sub-10, 20 sometimes, uh, it makes a lot of sense to, to have tools that they can, can train on when the weather doesn't cooperate. Well, and while, you know, while nothing replaces you know, getting behind an actual steering wheel or pump panel, the, those things will provide you not only a more safe environment to do those kind of initial familiarization classes with, but, you know, save some wear and tear on the engines and the, you know, the other apparatus as time goes on, those might last you a year or two longer. Yeah, I hope so. Uh, yeah. It, it, it's kind of like the fighter pilot mentality. You know, why do they do red flag exercises? Because they want to simulate their first 10 uh, engagements in a safe but challenging environment. Uh, you, you give them an opportunity to fail when it's low risk. So the same thing with it comes to these simulators. It's a lot lower risk to fail on a driving simulator and you know, catch the side of a, of a, a light post, you know, which happened here. Uh, so if we can do that in a simulator, let them make the mistakes there, and hey, we're ahead of the game. Uh, you ask about uh, what's coming up, what's some of the things in the future. We've got a few things working. There's a couple I'm, I'm willing to, to uh, kind of share right now. One of them is a big Air Force level issue, and it's part of the Air Force Armored Services Strategic Plan that we took the lead on, and it's a risk-based training program. Uh, we're going to be one of five bases this year in 2021 that's going to run this as a beta test. And the goal of this is to replace our current monthly proficiency training, which is quite honestly, most of it's or an awful lot of it's classroom based, you know, PowerPoint based. Uh, and what we want to do is operationalize our training program to where, yeah, we're still giving this information out. And they're still learning, but they're not learning in the classroom environment. They're learning in an operational environment. Uh, I always use ropes and knots as as an example. When you sit in the classroom or in in the vehicle phase and you're sitting there tying knots, okay, that's great. You can tie a knot. Can you do it in the context of a high and low angle environment? Can you do it in the the context of a water rescue environment? Uh, that's just one example, and there's many of them. 
So what we want to do, and, and Mr. Sean Grady, he's our ACF trainer up here. He's, he's just a whiz at these things. Uh, he's he's uh, leading a, a team across the Air Force, and they've come up with, really, they've built the program. Uh, they're refining it now. But we're going to go live on it for these five bases starting in January. And we're going to take the bumps and bruises for the next 12 months to make sure this thing works and, and to figure out where we can do better and before you know, they release it to the, to the general population. Uh, but I'm really excited about it. I, you know, the worst thing you can do for a firefighter is give them repetitive, boring training. And there's nothing more boring than PowerPoints or CBTs for that matter. So if we can get them out of the stations, you know, on their equipment, on their vehicles, out around their base, you know, value, you know, doing their training based on their local risk, on their local services, uh, you know, we talk about it being a library, you know, in the library of tr our monthly training, there's different books on the shelf, you know, whether it be structural, you know, uh, aircraft, wildland, uh, water rescue, EMS, keep on going down the, down the list. Uh, and then inside those books, there's chapters. And, and for example, in wildland, there may be two chapters. You may have your urban interface and in, in the next chapter may be your, more your traditional uh, wildland, but depending on the type of services or structural, you can have basement fires. You can have high uh, or, or uh, multi-level fires. You can just different things, but those are chapters within those books. So depending on what risk factors are on your base is when you build your training plan to start of the year, you pull those books off and check them out. And then you build your training plan out of those, depending on what your local risk factors are. Uh, you know, outside the five standard services that, uh, the 32,001 mandates, you know, many of us have other, other uh, services that are not necessarily captured. So, you know, for a place like, you know, Jay Bear or Eglins or Vandenberg's, uh, there's going to be a lot of extra uh, books on the shelves. Uh, but it, it allows us to operationalize our training and, like I said, hopefully get our people to, to be more proficient in the basic task, but in an operational environment. Uh, the other one is this one's this one's been a, a kind of controversial period at Bear over the last two or three years, and and hopefully it's coming back to to where we want it to be, and that's our EMS program. Um, as part of the legacy pre joint base, you know we when we have, you know, I'll, I'll give you my first my my joint basing joke up here. We were Bear before Bear was cool because the fire departments were actually joined up here. The Fort Richardson Fire Department and the Elmendorf Fire Department actually joined under a memorandum of understanding back in 2002. Joint basing didn't actually happen until 2010. So we were consolidated before that. Uh, so at that point, the Army had, had taken over in the fire department an ALS service. So when we joined, uh, we, we adopted it into the Air Force-led fire department, and then, of course, into the Jaber fire department. Well, a couple of years ago, there were, there were some disagreements between us and the med group and personalities involved, et cetera. And they end up reabsorbing both missions on both sides of the base, the Army side as well as the Air Force side. Um, we've put a lot of water in the bridge since then, uh, built back a lot of relationships. And right now, we have a uh, uh, MOU and that's in final coordination. Of course, it'll have to go up to half as well. It's going to be a shared service uh, if everything goes to, goes to as it looks now. 
the five positions they took back from us at the time, they're going to give back. Uh, and we're going to run ambulances out of the firehouse, uh, two of them, on one side on base, uh, Army, and one side on Army, from Air Force side. And on that ambulance will be uh, an Air Force medic, paramedic, and uh, there will be an Air Force firefighter on that ambulance as well. Uh, and I, th- I think AFMOA is, is really curious to see how this works, because you know, everybody knows there's a lot of discussion going on about what the future of Air Force pre-hospital care is, and is it going to be fire-based, is it going to be hospital-based? What's so I think they're kind of interested to see how this, this plays back out. But it's nothing that we haven't really done before, other than the fact that well, we're going to have a, a medic and a firefighter on the ambulance, as opposed to having you know entire medic ambulance and entire firefighter ambulance. Um, so that's going to be really interesting to see how it plays out. Uh, and also, if there if the Air Force does decide to transition to an entirely fire-based EMS, it gives us kind of a, a running start at it. And I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. Chief, talking about the risk-based training, uh, I know you you used the example rope you know, rope stuff, you know, low and high angle based on ropes. It's great that you can tie a knot, but go do it um, in a moment that you need to do it, like on the side of a mm-hmm. cliff. What other kind of examples are there for that type of training? Uh, let's, let's talk water rescue. Uh, yeah, you can, you can swim. You can put on the, the gear. You can tie knots. Can you do it all together on the side of a, of a raging river or creek? And and, and make it count and do it in a timely, safe manner. And there's different levels of training that can be involved in that. It can be shoreside, the operations, and then there can be, you know, the boat rescue. Uh, and then there could be the, the, the people who actually swim out in the middle of the river. Uh, so there's different levels, but they all require different skills. And, and many of the skills, you know, similar to the other skills we'll use in other services, but they're very differently applied. So if, if you can't do it in that operational environment under that, that requirement, you know, that circumstance, uh, then have you really learned it just because you can do it in a classroom? Uh, we want to see, and really, and I'll kind of give you a little bit more into it, uh, to say that this month uh, is, is you're really focusing on structural firefighting. That's the book you pulled off the shelf for this month. It's not just go do one exercise and call it done. Uh, as part of that is you build through that month, you know, based on, you know, other, and then these templates that uh, the working group's going to provide, it has all these topics and subjects that you should consider. And, and it's also broken down by tiers of uh, based, you know, young firefighters or tiers will be tier zeros. And now they're tier ones. They're gonna be, we're going to separate the driver operators out from the, from the very young firefighters. So these are the, the skills that we need to focus on for the t- tier zero guys. These are the skills we need to focus on tier one guys, et cetera, et cetera. But also as part of this, we're going to build in the dispatch piece because, you know, let's face it, dispatchers are part of every emergency response, every operational response. Uh, if we have a fire, what else do we bring into the, into the mix? We bring in our fire investigators. So they'll be part of this as well. So it's going to be a multi-stage, multi-faceted uh, evaluation across the month. Uh, the challenge is we're trying to make it as easy as we can for the train chiefs by giving them these templates, but really they're going to have to find uh, locations on their base that match up and that they really want to challenge their people with. So part of this, uh, of this training evolution will be that the crews will go out beforehand and they'll pre-fire plan that building. They'll walk through it. They'll understand where the systems are at, the fire department connections are at. Uh, where's your best means of egress? If you, how do you get on the roof? And so they'll, they'll do that pre-planning piece. 
So there's nothing being hidden here. It's not a surprise exercise. Uh, we want them to build their skills based on whatever assigned facility that they're given that, that month for that training topic. And, but that's going to be the topic of the month. It's going to be structural. And uh, you can vary off into basement fires. You can go into high, you know, multi-story fires, whatever you want to do. So it, it's all about bringing training back out onto the, the ground as opposed to the training rooms. It sounds it sounds fantastic, and it sounds like it'll be much more engaging. For yeah, the yeah. Just, it, one of the things that you can lose a firefighter on the quickest is just providing the same repetitive, boring training. If you, they want to be challenged, uh, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced of that. They want to be challenged. You see it a bit with fourteen ten drills. You know, uh, if hey, you're doing evolution number eight, and, and you see them gather around a table and, mm-hmm. and talk through what they're going to do. Uh, I, I, I imagine this is something on a much larger scale. It is. It is. Uh, and we draw some, we draw some of this from our 1410 program. And uh, I said it the other day that uh, some of our folks, I think the four, our 1410 program is probably one of the most beneficial things we've done for our operations people in a long time. Um, you're able to, to quantify and measure and track how well their crews are performing. And the way we do it, you can actually evaluate by position, you know, how well are our drivers doing? So as part of our 1410 drill program that we've done over the last several years, we have identified several areas that we needed to, to uh, strengthen, you know, whether it be through training, more advanced uh, driver operator training, uh, some, some equipment changes, some policy changes on, on what we do. Um, but as you know, Matt, as you know, we're we're big on standardization across all of our stations and all of our companies. So, uh, what we learn, you know, from you know this company having issues is maybe we need to change something that, or, you know, maybe, or if nobody else is having an issue, maybe it's just that one company or that those individuals. But if we start to see a repetitive, you know, then we know we got a broader issue, whether it be training equipment or whatever the case, policy, whatever the case may be. It's allowed us to make a lot of changes at a much more granular level with the fourteen ten drills. You iron out a lot of the kinks, uh, no pun intended, but That's a big one. one of those. And uh, yeah, it's a huge one. And sometimes it's, you know, charged up underneath the truck, mm-hmm. uh, even hydrant ops, uh, wearing your seatbelt, opening the door while the truck's still moving mm-hmm. to try to get a head start. Those, the, the way that, uh, you know, the company officer communicates in a, um, in a time sensitive environment. Breaking it down to the, to the microscopic level and really and not even individual components. Yeah, and it's something that you don't necessarily foresee, right? And, and maybe some people do foresee that being exercised, but so, sometimes you just have to go out and exercise it and kind of see what happens. And from my perspective, I, that's what I saw happen with 14 tendrils. And uh, what a fantastic training tool. And if we could expand on that and do that at a larger scale, uh, we're going to be a much better career field. Yeah, we're trying to build in some additional scenarios outside of what's just in the NFPA standard 1410. Uh, we're, you know, we're looking to build those type of exercises for EMS, for example. Uh, you, you, you're, you're familiar with our quick six process, you know, and some of those different topics, uh, topics, but, uh, but using that same philosophy on setting up, a, a hazmat decon, uh, you know, you break it down to that lower level and you build it into the schedule and then every crew goes, rotates out there and they do it and they evaluate it and then they, they learn from it. And then we learn as a department that, okay. You know, maybe we don't have the right equipment set that we think we do. Uh, but, you know, you don't really know until you evaluate something. 
But once again, it challenges our firefighters and it brings out that natural competitiveness because what does Mr. Miller do every month when he's running these exercises is he, he publicizes the results, you know, based on company and he awards uh, whoever was the best company of that month for that particular scenario. And they, they, they're pretty big into that competition. It makes a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. It's a big deal. Yeah. Right. You get your picture put up on the screen right. at every, the, all the stations. It's a big deal. Yeah. I, I can attest to the, just a very small piece of kind of the way we did business in Alaska, but the, um, you mentioned King County in Seattle and how they run business there and how we kind of adopted some of those protocols and with the emergency medical dispatcher criterion based dispatch um, and the high performance CPR. Another piece of that was AEDs on command vehicles. And I uh, went, so when I showed up at the base I'm at now um, we didn't have that. And back in June, I, you know, I went through and I, I put in a purchase request to get, a couple more AEDs, you know, because I know that the command element is a lot of times first on scene while everybody else right. is bunking out, you know, you can haul ass down the road and be there. Well, it came to fruition on October 5th, 15th for me. I was the first one to touch a cardiac arrest patient with that That's AED right. on chief two. And the, the guy's alive today. Amazing. So, well, yeah. You rapid can, care. Yeah. It's the key to survival. So chief last point we got for you. I know there's been a lot of significant calls at Jaber throughout your time since 2008, you've, you've seen quite a bit of stuff. Um, you know, there was a C-17 crash in 2017 being probably one of the most notable that I'm aware of. I'm sure there's much more. I'm curious to know, you know, which of the events had the most significant impact on you in terms of lessons learned or driving changes in procedures for the department? Yeah, we, you, know, you mentioned a minute ago that, you know, there's a lot of odd responses that happen up at Jaber. You know, some are, some are big and then some are smaller, but they're so unique in their and, and there's scale and scope that you learn a lot, not just from the big ones, but from the small ones. Uh, yeah, everybody wants to talk about the C-17 crash. That was that was a bad day. Uh, it's very unique. You know, crashed preparing for an air show. Uh, took out the only north-south railroad in the state of Alaska coming out of the, the port of Anchorage, which supplies 80 to 90 percent of the entire state. Uh, you know, terrible weather, uh, composite materials everywhere, you know, trying to locate bodies and remains, uh, composite materials and, and exotic metals. It took, takes 24 hours to put the fire out, starts wildland fires and you know, part of it, wildlife, you know, bears and moose chasing the responders out of the, out of the area. Uh, so yeah, very unique. Uh, I can tell you that for me, the learning point on that operation it being as remote as it was, you know, was that you, I had to accept early on that we had never trained for this because of the uniqueness of the scenarios of all the difference. Uh, uh, like I said, the wildland fires and the animals and just the railroad being involved, you know, there's, that gets senators and governors involved really quick around here. Uh, we had to accept really quick that there, we didn't have a pre-plan, pre-fire plan for this, and we had never trained this particular scenario. While we trained aircraft crash scenarios, of course, this one was very, very different. So once I, I communicated out to the, all the staff that, okay, this, this there's not a plan for this. This is a come-as-you-are party, so we got to figure it out. And, uh, it, and once we accepted that and stopped trying to force a square peg into a round hole, things got a lot easier. And at that point, we started able to 
to, you know, I won't say freelance because that definitely wasn't what I was doing, but I think, think a little bit more freestyle and, and how we approach things. And one of the real things, as big an operation as this was, and as many interested parties as there was, uh, we realized that we had to establish the priorities. You know, we teach that in commander, you establish priorities. How many times does the incident commander's priorities get uh, shifted based on other people's priorities? So we made a strong commitment that this is the steps we're going to take. This is going to be a long period of operation. We maintain command for five days. And uh, we, we established the priorities and we defended them. That everybody comes up thought their priorities was, was, was first. And, of course, sometimes that led to some, some uh, uncomfortable conversations for them when you had to explain to them that their priorities was maybe number four on your list. Uh, so that, that was probably the, the first learning point there is that, yeah, nobody else knows how to do this operation better than we do. And we're going to set the, 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 the path and we're going to set the benchmarks and we're going to plan for this using our incident action plans. And we're going to run the operation as, as we see fit. And uh, just sometimes you have to explain to people that, no, your priority is not the number one priority for this operation at this time. Um, and you have to be flexible, understand that things are going to change. You're going to get different guidance, different un- unknowns. You know, we had to deal with, like I said, you know, crappy weather. Uh, we had to, to deal with you know, bear and moose and you name it. Uh, wolves, we actually had wolves to chase some cops. That was fun. Um, so you have to be flexible, but you have to keep in perspective what your ultimate goal is and how does that fit uh, the timeline of what you're trying to do. So, yeah, that was, that, was, that was pretty interesting. A lot of outside people. And I think probably what makes it the most unique was I went into the operation uh, working for, you know, third civil engineer squadron, third mission support group, third uh, wing. And I came out of it before the five days were over. I was working for the 673rd. Uh, civil engineer squadron, 673rd CE group, and then a 673rd airbase wing, which everybody going, okay, that's just name changes. Nope. That was all new leadership because the joint, the air show continued. Uh, and as part of that air show was the stand up of the joint base. So about day two and a half, our entire leadership chain changed. So you can, it was a big bump. You could feel it on scene because all of a sudden the people you've been talking to, were different voices and they quite honestly, they didn't have the background of what you were doing or, or the goals you had set out. Uh, even if they had copies of the incident action plan, they didn't really understand. So we had to, to slow down there for a bit and do some reeducation and let people know this, you know, we know what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. But yeah, not too many people start out with one organizational structure and emergency come out with a total different one. It was, that was a good day. Yeah. I didn't know that about that event. Yeah. That crazy. made it fun. Uh, you asked about some of the other ones, and you mentioned a minute ago about the wildland program up here. Uh, yeah, we, we have we've had to go to school on wildland. You know, everybody talks about climate change, and it, it is a reality. You know, we can argue all day about what causes it, but uh, the wildfire seasons in Alaska has changed over the last ten years significantly in some cases. Uh, and what went on here in 2015, and then again last year in 2019 definitely changed my expectations and understand what we needed to do. Uh, we have a much more robust program than what we did at one time. And now that we have the AFCAC wildland support module on the ground here, we have a fantastic relationship with those guys. They're awesome. Uh, 
so we are able to put put a, uh, in the field a very effective capability, and it's it's very popular uh, around this region because we're able to come on scene with capabilities that, quite honestly, they don't have. Uh, we tend to be more road based, of course, uh, because we come in heavy, uh, so we can provide structural protection, and of course, we can put people in the field with chainsaws and guided helicopter drop buckets and everything just like they can. But we come in pretty heavy with quite a bit of water, so. Uh, we can put a, a 20 person team in the field between, you know, fire and, uh, and the wildland support module, you know, with some good, good capabilities, some good equipment. And uh, we, they like to call us and we enjoy being called, but it's, it's a learning experience. And, you know, last year we went out in four different disco responses uh, as far as 100 miles away or 150 miles away, actually, and uh, stayed out there for, for quite a while. And uh, it, it was challenging, but it's it's really fun to watch how our guys compare and match up uh, with the folks off base, especially the professionals at the Alaska Division of Forestry. Some amazing wildland firefighters. And then, of course, as they bring people in from the lower 48, it's really fun for me as a chief. You know, I'm, I'm not out there doing anything, but it's really fun to see them, how they integrate and, and how they match up. And, you know, the feedback that we get from from these ICs and ops chiefs. Uh, from these uh, type one, type two teams. Uh, it's really, it's really uh, gratifying and it's impressive. Chief, it's been a pleasure having you on. You've shared a lot about leadership, culture, the initiatives there, Jay Bear. Just wanted to give you a couple minutes to close up with any kind of final thoughts you may have. Well, like I said, first and foremost, thanks for having me on. Uh, I love what you guys are doing with this platform. Uh, it's, it's a great avenue to for people to share their thoughts and ideas and different ideas, because I know for every one of these you guys do, it, it just uh, spurs on conversation, not only in, in departments, but between departments and different DOD agencies, honestly. So I, I think that's, that's the whole idea of why we, why you guys do this. It's not just for somebody to, to tune in and listen and go, Hey, that's cool. But for to, to spur those conversations. And I appreciate that. There's a lot of great, departments out there with a lot of great innovative stuff. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm part and parcel of what they call, you know, affectionately the disaster crew. Uh, and that's, you know, myself and Kevin Smith out of Beale and Chemo out of Fairchild and of course, John Thompson out of Ramstein. Uh, and we bounce stuff off each other constantly. And if you don't have that kind of uh, feedback group or that, that group that you can trust, to be honest with you, quite honestly, we, we get pretty honest with each other. Uh, you know, it's not all, Hey, you're doing great. You know, you're killing it brother. And you know, all that. Sometimes we tell them, no, we think you're screwing up. Uh, so I think if you have that, that kind of peer group that, uh, you can bounce those ideas off, it's, it's pretty valuable. And I, I really appreciate the input I get from these guys. And, uh, you know, they've changed my mind on some things and I'm sure I'll probably change their mind on some things. Uh, it's, it's great to have that, that peer group that you can talk to. Yes, yeah, well, we appreciate your time and, you know, we appreciate every one of you disaster crew members who have come on and, and talked with us and shared your thoughts. Um, I think a, lot, a whole lot of people are getting a lot out of it and um, we appreciate, you know, your kind words on the podcast and this thing kind of turned into something that I don't know that either one of us anticipated, you know, having people contact you and senior master sergeants or even chief officers saying, Oh, I didn't know that. I appreciate you guys. That episode. Like, exactly. oh, I didn't, I didn't know that either. So I'm appreciative. I'm, I'm appreciative just as well that that guest decided to come on. So, and the same to you, chief. Uh, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for you know sharing your nuggets of wisdom. And I know a lot of people are going to get a lot out of it. 
I hope so. Take care, guys. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Fire Dog Podcast. You can find more content and episodes just like this regularly posted to our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash the Fire Dog Podcast and on Instagram at the Fire Dog Podcast. That is the Fire D-A-W-G Podcast. Don't forget to hit that subscribe, like, and follow button to stay plugged into every new episode. This has been Perry and Matt Wilson with our guest chief, David Donan. Until next time, stay safe. <laughs>